You're here with Claudia Herzenfelder, the International Student Affairs Commission for the SGPS, and we're going to speak to some graduate and professional students here at Queen's University about their research and how it stretches beyond Canadian borders. What are some of the opportunities and challenges this has afforded them? Let's find out. This is Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. All right, welcome back. Uh, today we've got Siobhan O'Sullivan here and we're going to be speaking Siobhan about... O'Sullivan. Oh God, sorry. <laughs> I wish. I've been listening to... I've been Her listening podcast? to that podcast recently. That's hilarious. Oh, can I wait? One, I'm going to try this again. Um, okay, welcome back. Today we've got a really exciting guest uh, from Environmental Studies who's doing some incredible research in Costa Rica. And she's going to be talking to us a bit about you know, all the sorts of boundaries she's been crossing uh, when looking at human-animal relations in a different country, you know, with the different species, uh, and what are the opportunities and challenges that she's found while doing this research. But before we get too much into that conversation with Siobhan, first I want to give her an opportunity to introduce herself and tell us a bit about, uh, you know, tell us the title, uh, what brought you to Queen's, etc. Absolutely. Um, so my name is Siobhan Spearin and I'm originally from Toronto and I did my undergrad and master's at Guelph and now I find myself at Queen's University. I'm a third year PhD candidate in environmental studies and I work in an animal geography research group called the Lives of Animals that's led by Dr. Alice Savorka. So the title of my research is Monkey Business, the Lives of Primates in Costa Rican Sanctuaries. So what exactly is a primate, Siobhan? You say you're focusing on the lives of primates. Why should we be looking at primates' lives? What's the significance of this research? Absolutely. So I actually came through this research from an interest in wildlife tourism and the issues going on just sort of globally. It's been this conversation um, in May or June of this year, National Geographic's issue was totally dedicated to a special on wildlife tourism. Mm -hmm. So it's really this growing issue and I've always been interested in primates from just a love of Jane Goodall and all that work and I did a primatology field course in Costa Rica during my undergrad. So it was always sort of building in my mind and I realized that primates are really great indicator species for ecosystems and the environment. Um, so what is an indicator species? So an indicator species is one that you look at to see if something's kind of going amiss in the environment. For example, like frogs would be another um, good indicator species. And primates are really important because they don't have, at least in the Costa Rican context, they don't have a lot of predators. I believe the harpy eagle is the only one um, that I know of. And they are, so they're kind of at the top tier there in the trophic, oh, God, I'm using technical terms. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. You can just tell us what trophic, we're going to learn from you. So what is, what is trophic then? Essentially like the food web. They're like top tier and they're very important. So the eagles are top tier or the primates? Yes, the eagles are the predator of the primates. Okay, I'm with you. Um, and essentially primates are super important for the ecosystem in Costa Rica because they're seed dispersers. And they found that there's a lot of animals, like different types of uh, species of birds that will follow migrating troops of uh, monkeys around and will kind of look to where the monkeys are to see where the food source is. Um, so they sort of have this cascading effect on the environment and are really important to protect. Over 75% of uh, primate species globally are declining currently in population. And they're- 75%? Yeah, over 70, yeah. Across across the world, so is, is that some evenly distributed across the world in terms of the the decline, or are you seeing that it is 
concentrated in some places more than others? That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. I would say it's concentrated uh, more where there's a lot of significant habitat loss and deforestation. Like I'm sure now with like the Amazon forest fires and different sorts of well, wildfires are certainly a topical issue right now. We're probably going to see those as bigger hotspots of primate population loss. Um, specific to Costa Rica, there's four indigenous primates, which are all monkeys, not apes. Apes are in Africa, um, as you know. So, so, so for those who don't know, what is the difference between a monkey, an ape, and a primate? So I know this, this is probably the basic level question in terms of your research, but just so that we're... We're on top of what, what it is you're saying. What is the difference between a monkey, a primate, and an ape? So essentially, the uh, primates include apes and monkeys. And you're going to find in Costa Rica and in Latin America the New World monkeys. So there aren't any apes unless you count humans. Uh, and I use the term sort of primate and monkey interchangeably. Okay. Um, and the type of New World monkey we're looking at is called, I've never said this word out loud, platyrinus. I think it means that it has a flat nose. Okay. Um, so that's sort of the, I guess, like the genre of animal that we're looking at. Wow. All right. And and what made you go to Costa Rica to, to do this research? Why, why are you looking at um, monkeys in Costa Rica, primates in Costa Rica? So in 2018, I was hired as a tour facilitator by an awesome Canadian um, student tour company called Inside Global Education. And I was really interested in their work because they focus on uh, more like decolonial uh, perspectives for to present students with when they go to the developing world to do some sort of outreach. And it just so happened that um, the work that I was able to facilitate was that occurred at a rescue center in Costa Rica. And that had been my first time seeing primates in Costa Rica in captivity. And when I started just sort of Googling at night, I realized that there has been nothing published to my knowledge and to most Costa Rican people that I've speak in, spoken to, their knowledge on um, primates in sanctuaries and rescue centers in Costa nothing Rica. Nothing at all? Nothing. Whoa. So it was like this aha moment of this, a huge gap that I found myself very invested in because I'd actually gone to the rescue center and seen the great work that they were doing. And I realized they were sort of the last line of defense in terms of helping these uh, primates that had to be rescued from a variety of different causes and if it wasn't going if they weren't going to be rescued by a rescue center or a sanctuary there was essentially no hope for them they, that was the only place that they could go my word so what, what, what kind of work are they doing in this in this sanctuary yeah so there's a lot of the essentially like animal facilities speaking broadly in Costa Rica and we're not sure how many there are because some could be operating without permits um, I've heard upwards of like 100, 200 potentially, but there's not really a bona fide list. Essentially, you can have a sanctuary or a zoo. It's legally classed as a zoo, which is what we would expect, where it's a place where tourists go for to see the, well, all different types of animals, but I'm particularly interested in the monkeys. And there's some sort of like environmental interpretation. And essentially, it's like the tourism aspect. And these are the, the animals in the sanctuary section are never going to be released so that's why we're not afraid of them being habituated to humans and mm -hmm. having that sort of like interface uh, whereas the rescue center section which a lot of places that do the sanctuary tourism will have and it's just a section that's kept private from tourists so no one's allowed to go there except the primary animal care staff and usually it's even one or two people at a very secure rescue center and these are where you keep the animals that are um, that have a chance of being rehabilitated and released back into the wild. So we don't want them to be habituated to humans. Okay. 
And um, the, the actual research question that you're dealing with, so I think we have a better sense now of what it is you're saying in terms of Costa Rica and what we're seeing, that, for example, you've got a country that's dealing with a variety of environmental and social uh, harms or issues in which, and correct me if I'm wrong on any mm -hmm. of this, uh, in which a variety of species are being affected, of which you're focusing on primates. Uh, and there's kind of this interesting relationship between tourism and rehabilitation happening at the center. What, what is your what is your actual focus? So how you yeah. you're doing a PhD, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And have you have you gone to the field? Have you have you asked questions? Have you been there? Like what what is the thing that you're looking at with regards to this? Absolutely. Um. So, after my. Uh, summer working as a tour facilitator there, I realized that the issue was very complex and that it was something that needed both. I wanted to bring in like my biological background and, and those sorts of research methods, which for me fall into animal welfare science. And what to, does that mean? Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. No, absolutely. So essentially looking at the well-being of animals and okay. essentially my work was is building off of a report that was covered in National Geographic in 2015. By, led by Tom Morehouse and a group at Oxford. And they found that they reviewed 24 types of wildlife tur tourism globally, so different types being like an elephant sanctuary, like bear circus, all different kind of events. And they found that the only ones that were good for animal welfare and conservation were sanctuaries. And the rest were like either quite bad or abysmally bad, and they estimated that over a half a million animals worldwide are in some sort of bad tourism scenario. So that was sort of the germination mm. of the idea, and then after I'd gone to Costa Rica as a tour facilitator, and I said, oh, here's a sanctuary, the sanctuary tourism, and I started kind of churning that out, and when I realized no one had published on Costa Rican sanctuaries, it just seemed perfect. Mm. Um, and I had that background, like I'm, I'm from Canada, so I didn't know as as much about the tropical species there and it's it has six percent of the world's biodiversity so there's a lot to know and I thought drawing on my experience and my love of primates uh, I would focus on them because I guess I could, I could talk about some of the different issues that are facing monkeys and why they'd end up in a sanctuary and rescue center yeah that'd be great and and also I mean you raised something interesting there so all of our previous uh, interviewees have been international students actually at Queen's University and oftentimes going back or focusing on their home countries and why they're doing research uh, you know and, and actually we had we had uh, a previous speaker Natalia who was an international student but focusing on a different country and living in Canada so it's it's really interesting the the international dimensions in terms of how you came to ask this question that you went for what was in essence a, a brief period of time saw a gap and then you know saw a need for an op like an opportunity to really you know get your get your teeth into it. it's probably a bad pun for this <laughs> um, um, but yeah go go ahead I just wanted to reflect on that and and just think about how cool it is how far you've gone to to see and ask and question and what kind of reception did you receive mm -hmm. uh, you know while while maybe you're speaking about some of these issues um, and and the challenges that are facing these monkeys in Costa Rica um, potentially thereafter as part of that if you could also tell me some of the challenges you experienced as uh, you know a Canadian woman going to a different country uh, what what was it like trying to ask these questions in, in a context completely different from your own? Absolutely. Um, so I'll start by saying, I don't think I've like verbalized explicitly what my, my research question is, <laughs> which is that I'm, I'm interested in the welfare and conservation of, 
uh, monkeys in Costa Rican sanctuaries and rescue centers. And so I look mm. at um, measures for their well-being, essentially. Are they being treated well, their veterinary records, their behavior, all sorts of different ways to look at their environmental enclosures, how much tourism they experience. And then I look at the conservation success of rescue centers because currently there's, again, like nothing published on how successful. We don't even know how many, how many monkeys are being rehabilitated or wow. are in captivity there yet. Um, so looking at the process of rehabilitation, how that works, there's no real standard manual for it. So a lot of it is trial and error. Um, and there is, I've heard from my interviews with people working on this, working in this on the ground, that there is a need for that sort of having protocols, having someone sort of amalgamate what is everyone around the country doing because they don't always, these sanctuaries don't always speak to mm-hmm. each other. Um, they're kind of sometimes like little islands. There is collaboration, but it's it's a little fragmented. So. so they're all kind of figuring it out for themselves as they go. Yeah, and some have been open for like over 20 years. Others are four or five years old. So there's a lot of knowledge that's in different spots around the country. So I went to eight different ones over the summer um, wow. on my field season. So I how, can, how long were you there for? I was there for, it was about three months, and then previously I'd been there for collectively like maybe like six weeks wow, um, over, okay. the, over the two years that I had gone separately. And I'm going back for another four or five months. And is it always at these same eight sites that you're going to? Good question. I'm currently trying to figure out where I want to go back and visit because each site I genuinely see there's a lot to learn there because each one is different, which is really interesting. And some of them have different, like, densities of different monkeys. Like, some places only have two species. Others have all four. And and depending on where the, the site is located, whether it's inland, on the coast, or in different parts of the country where it's hotter or, or uh, wetter, depends. It changes what are the... Um, what are the monkeys that they're going to have coming in? And also the tourism development in those areas, in areas where it's very developed um, and there's a lot of expats living especially a lot of expat communities you're Mm. gonna see just from like anecdotally from looking at the records a lot of monkeys coming in that have been hit by cars that have been like found at restaurants or in people's homes or the biggest issue well I would say the the most pressing issue that a lot of sanctuaries are trying to educate on is electricity because 98% of Costa Rica's electrical lines are uninsulated wow So this is an issue that a lot of sort of like citizen scientists and sanctuaries have taken up with. So they work with the the electrical company that's in charge of that called ISE in Spanish. That's the acronym. And they also will put in these monkey bridges, which are like blue ropes that act as a wildlife corridor. Okay. And they put that over an area where there's like an uninsulated electrical line. Can the monkeys tell the difference between one of these these ropes versus, versus an uninsulated that would be an amazing project. I, I've heard that question asked a lot, and I don't think anyone knows. Like, we can't say. No one's okay. studied it yet. And that's one of the most exciting and also kind of hard things is that no one has studied a lot of the stuff I'm looking at now, I guess, for the first time. And well, it's very exciting for yeah. you. You're, you're, you're literally a leader. <laughs> you're, you're there. You're leading the pack, which is incredible. And, and just some of the stuff you're doing is really mind-blowing. At, I think it just goes to show that at PhD level, you, mm-hmm. you can achieve a great deal. Um, I mean, you're, you're helping, from what I can gather here, you're, you're quite literally helping to map together some of the best practices that are happening mm-hmm. in a country where no research on this. I mean, I think research on this globally is probably yeah. not, not as high as it should be. Um, but you're the first, and you're also 
dealing with best practice and trying to get people across the country aware of what is best practice uh, and highlighting the gaps for where further research is needed, which is incredibly exciting. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got to say, I'm, I'm blown away. Oh. <laughs> it sounds great hearing it back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of the things is a lot of, there is still, like there's research being done, but a lot of it is through the trial and error that rescue centers are doing. So you have wildlife managers that are just testing out new things, which I would call research. Um, but there's this publication gap where I've spoken to um, biologists at the University of Costa Rica. And I said, like, has anyone ever come to you to ask you about, they study primates in the wild, about mm -hmm. how we can apply their the natural primate diets and how that can be translated into captivity and has anyone ever come to you for your expertise on that in a sanctuary and it was sort of like a, a no or we don't we're not in, involved in that realm and apparently there was only one other person that the scientist who's really esteemed in neotropical conservation knew of and she just sort of disappeared and anything she had gathered about sanctuaries was left unpublished wow so they a lot of people don't um, oh my god I lost my turn on uh, essentially the my interest in coming into Costa Rica also came from a genuine love of the country okay and the people there anyone that's been there will surely confirm the Costa Rican people are incredibly generous they will inconvenience themselves to help you out um, they're very welcoming they cook amazing food and are really patient and this I realized this was a lot more important uh, more important um, during my field season they're very patient with people who are learning Spanish which is not the experience I had when I was in Spain. So, so you, you weren't, I mean, you, you've just raised a whole bunch of really interesting things. I think about publication, finding versus not publishing. So, you know, sometimes we equate research with, or publications with research having been done, but there's a lot of invisible research out there, unpublished Absolutely. papers, um, possibly NGOs or independent organizations that are publishing or not publishing, but just gathering information and data. And I guess uh, it's one of our roles as researchers to try and find out what has already been done, right? We're mm -hmm. not reinventing the wheel, which is uh, really interesting. And and then you raise also this issue of going to a country in which, you know, is not, uh, you know, an English-speaking country necessarily. And um, this came up in a previous interview as well, where that raises certain questions about the power of knowledge and whose mm -hmm. voices get heard. Because, you know, do you, do you know whether there are or there is information pertaining to sanctuaries or monkeys in Costa Rica that are in Spanish? Or mm -hmm. is this... Uh, you know, is this is this is this completely blank, or is it something where it's just not apparent in the English language or English publications? Yeah, absolutely. That's something I was definitely worried about, and I'm constantly trying to find new ways to Google in Spanish and have Google mm. Alerts set up for this. So you're not a you're not a first you you're not fluent in Spanish. No, no, I've started wow. learning it over the last yeah over the last year. Incredible. Um, yeah, it's it's beautiful. I love it. I speak Italian and French previously, Whoa. so it was like it wasn't as hard as if someone was starting from scratch for me. I, I could already understand quite a bit of it, but even then, I was sort of humbled by how hard it was and how different some of the language was. Mm. Um, luckily, like my my family is Italian. Like Italian, it's very expressive um, <laughs> with a lot of emotions, and you know, uh, so it's relatively easy to get at least the gist. Um, and I found, and we can talk about that whenever. Um, about how I had to sometimes do interviews in Spanish alone without a translator wow. just because it was I didn't have a translator at the time and I didn't want to miss an opportunity and those were definitely very humbling and challenging but I found 
what was really great is that the person I was interviewing was very obviously speaking in a very basic sense and using like basic language, speaking very clearly. Um, and they always understood English better than I did, but maybe just couldn't, weren't comfortable speaking it. Mm. So we were able to sort of like with me listening to them in Spanish and then me sometimes replying in English could figure out this like way around it to wow. get an interview out, um, which was definitely some of the most challenging. Um, but yeah. So did you start with those originally and then get a translator or did you have a translator in place prior to going to Costa Rica? Yeah, so it was a bit of the months leading into my field season were incredibly challenging, which I'm sure most people experience when they're going into a field season. It's like, how am I going to get everything done in time? The permit process was um, a lot <laughs> and it's still being processed even though I submitted it like last April that's fine they have it the Ministry of the Environment who handles all the permitting and also handles the regulation of sanctuaries so it's all neatly housed in the Ministry of the Environment I think this is sorry yeah. um, I think this is a really important point because I think a lot of people who might be doing international research or scholarship they have a really neat idea they've been somewhere and they think oh you know this no research has been done on this and oftentimes, particularly here at Queen's University, people are quite swept up in, in ethics reviews because mm -hmm. Queen's University has, uh, you know, an ethics, an ethics board that you have to undergo rightfully so before doing field work. But something that I think is maybe overlooked and maybe not spoken about as much amongst graduates, uh, you know, graduate students is that you often need a permit if you're going to a particular country. I know when I did research in Botswana, it was quite a process. You have to justify to the government why it is you're going to that country. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to flag, that it's not mm -hmm. necessarily an easy process that involves a lot of justifying how the government or the country is gaining from your research. Uh, did you find that you had to justify it in that way or was it just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a bureaucratic process? I think it's both. It was a bureaucratic process and I found that I'm not entirely sure why, but it was very hard to get a hold of certain people. The mm -hmm. The publication that I was following, like essentially the guidelines to doing this permit, it required me to have like, you know, the passports of my supervisor, of any research assistants. And I had to have my entire proposal, which as anyone who's done a PhD proposal was like 50 pages, um, translated into Spanish and not with like an online translator. Wow. Um, so I ended up hiring my, my friend who's Mexican, Shadow Gonzalo, to translate it for me. Um, and he was amazing and he helped me with, I had to translate all of my ethics protocols for the doing interviews, doing surveys, all to Spanish. And so I sort of hired my friends, my Spanish speaking friends to check on all of that to make sure it was understandable. Uh, but for me, I, there were weeks where I was just cold calling the Ministry of the Environment in Costa Rica via Skype, trying to get a hold of the person that was in charge of my uh, permit because I thought that I wouldn't be allowed into the country without mm -hmm. it. And, Luckily, I was. Um, and it, now it's been, I've made friends just through, again, like that's one of the biggest things I've noticed is it's really, field work is really who you know. Mm -hmm. And just from random interviews that I've done with people, I've been passed along the numbers of various other ones. And I even, like I had an interview with the um, advisor to the vice minister of natural resources. So like top floor wow. of the ministry of the environment. And when she asked about my permit, I said, well, it's been processing. And she's like, okay, I'll see to it personally. And that's, you know, that's sort of the last I've heard of it. So I feel secure in that, that they know I've really been trying and I did try as best as I could. Um, so we're waiting to see on that. And I did have to do as well, um, pro ethical uh, clearance for both my human subjects and animal subjects, even though I wasn't doing anything that you would consider necessarily like invasive experimental. So this is again, quite an interesting um, point to raise because I 
it's, it's a relatively new era, uh, area uh, for animal studies is the, the consideration of ethics for animals. Because mm-hmm. I know here at Queens, if you do animal ethics, and I'd, I'd, I'd actually love to hear more about the process that you had to go through. Um, for those of you who don't know who is listening, I, I'm also going to be doing research on, on animals, but I'm entering the proposal session section right now, uh, whereas Siobhan is at near the end, so all of this stuff is super interesting for me. Um, but there is an ethics review for, for any sort of humans that you're interviewing and you have to take into consideration, you know, their jobs and the, the extent to which they will be known or not known as subjects in your in your research. But when it comes to animals, it seems that they're only really concerned with, and this is primarily across the world, that animals only seem to come into consideration with regards to ethics when you're looking at uh, hard sciences, when you're looking at laboratory uh, experiments, etc., not in terms of how we observe them or interpret animals, uh, as we, we don't pay them necessarily the same kind of nuance and sensitivity. Was that your experience here? Like, what, what, mm-hmm. what was the ethics for, for animals? Absolutely. So, um, through the Animal Ethics Committee at Queens, because I was doing behavioral observation of monkeys, so it does it does truly have an effect to have what we call like in science observer presence to be there you are affecting the behavior that of the monkeys so it we my supervisor and I figured that it was important that I did an ethical protocol for it and it was also just a really good practice of course at the time it's like always tedious to go through these protocols mm. especially even for the human participants as well because um, it's very thorough and now I look back on it and I I'm really glad that I was asked all these hard questions because I feel like I am better versed to protect both the animal subjects I have been looking at and the human participants that I've worked with. Mm. So it's definitely a necessary process and it made getting my permit or getting my permit kind of gathered together a lot easier because I had already kind of cut through the chaff um, to get to what the core of what I was doing and what groups would be involved in the stakeholders. And what, what kind of questions are they asking you in these, these ethics processes? Absolutely. So for the human participant ethics, it was mostly about how you would um, record and store their information and protect identities. I found actually that, um, so you have to ask your human participant if they want to be anonymous. And I found only a couple of people throughout the maybe over like 80 or so individuals I interviewed or surveyed throughout the summer actually wanted to be kept anonymous but so far I've kept everyone anonymous okay um, unless they had something they specifically wanted me to credit them with because there's a lot of sort of like social politics involved in wildlife rehabilitation mm-hmm. which I wasn't aware of until I did my field season and I found that being vague about for example if I was going to a rescue center and I was saying what another rescue center I'd been to does I wouldn't name that rescue center because I found a lot of the time there was already sort of like maybe an implicit bias or I didn't want to give a, give away sort of different things. So I ended up keeping it anonymous as, as anonymous as possible, which is hard because I also do science communication on my Instagram, mm-hmm. the Animal Welfareist, where I was posting places I had been, but I've not yet said where I got certain information from to anybody. Okay. Yeah. And so your Instagram is Animal Welfareist. Oh, yeah. Little <laughs> plug there, Animal <laughs> Welfareist, cool. Uh, I'll make sure I follow you. Um, and then in terms of the questions that were asked about your animal ethics, what, mm-hmm. what did you find there? Yeah, absolutely. So it was, luckily for me, I was just doing behavioral observation. So it would have been a whole other ball of wax if I was doing anything like that could be considered invasive with the monkeys or physically manipulating mm-hmm. them in some way. 
essentially it was asking about the types of species um, and going through the three R's of can you replace these species with something non-human? Can you uh, refine the experiment to be less? Uh, and can you, oh my gosh, replace, refine, reduce, reduce the number of animals or the number of like observations? Uh, but because it was just the nature of it was observation of monkeys that are already seen by tourists. So mm -hmm. they're, they have a constant flow of tourists coming in to look at them anyway. For me, it was relatively straightforward. And it was just checking that I wouldn't be doing anything that would be potentially putting the, the primates at risk. Fascinating. Um, so it's really it's really interesting, I think, uh, as I said before, kind of the different questions that are coming up around humans and animals and what you're, what, what kind of ethics protocols are in place uh, and, and I hadn't known actually about these three hours before mm. you before you mentioned it here so that's really fascinating uh, I want to go back for a second to some of the, the language dimensions you were mentioning um, so you had said earlier that you you know language had provided several obstacles for you in terms of trying to understand people through interviews mm -hmm. but it sounds as though it also provided a bit of a, a collaborative atmosphere where where kind of in your shared lack of language, you were able to find different ways to communicate with one another. Is that is that the case? Yeah, and I think like all of that credit goes to how open and welcome the Costa Rican people are mm -hmm. to people who, foreigners who are genuinely interested in trying to learn the language and culture. Um, for me, that was a vested interest in being more culturally fluent so that I could, you know, build connections and networks and also on a like strict level just like do interviews successfully um, but in the process of hiring a local translator uh, who was amazing shout out Wendell he was able to help me understand a lot of just even just like how I position myself when talking to different like sub even physically physically like stand like farther or closer or for example there was so my interviews I should mention I did interviews with local Costa Ricans that lived within this radius I sort of drew around rescue centers because mm -hmm. I wanted to get an idea of their perceptions of primates because I haven't found anything published on that yet um, and that's uh, it, to me, it very clearly directly uh, relates to the issue with primate conservation. How how do you, th does the average Costa Rican feel about primates? What do they know about them? And how is there any connection then to be drawn to certain threats that are more pressing to primates? For example, I was particularly interested in uh, conflict scenarios and hunting and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I should mention um, that Costa Rica, it, it's illegal to hunt, it's illegal to have wildlife as pets, it's illegal to touch or feed them. Incredible. They have like the strictest laws I've ever heard of in terms of wildlife protection, they're amazing. And what I found is, and I, I only interviewed about like 25 local people, but there was not a lot of the things I thought I would hear, which is like, oh, the monkeys come and steal. I was in rural areas. I'm like, oh, they'll, I'll probably hear things of like they're a pest or they take food. Even when people talked about monkeys coming, I interviewed a fruit salesman. He's like, oh, they come every day and they steal my bananas. <laughs> he said it with like a twinkle in his eye. And it was like, oh, like those rascals. Like there was no really sense of like vengeance okay, um, or, or anger or annoyance. And so those were things I wasn't expecting. And I realized I had to sort of check myself that I wasn't trying to find this conflict scenario that potentially didn't exist. Again, I, it was a small sample size. Mm -hmm. um, but just having those different, I was typically in more rural areas when I was doing my interviews. So a lot of them didn't even, some of the towns I was in didn't have like a church. Like it would just be like a soccer field. Okay. Um, and then houses. And so, so what, you're seeing completely different access to resources here uh, in terms yes. of how you can deal with a problem, how you can even ask questions about the problem really. Um, I mean, that must have been an, an, 
you've been to Costa Rica before, so perhaps it wasn't that much of a, a shock for you. And I think shock is maybe the wrong word, but it's substantially different when you're comparing kind of the resources that you have available here in Canada, right? Versus, yeah. Uh, yeah do you want to reflect on that a bit? Absolutely. It was, to be honest, it was a more, that my only experience previously to this field uh, season was having been in the, in the deep jungle of like near Cork, Corcovado National Park so it was like the roughest and there was like we were not near where humans <laughs> where people were living it was a national park and then being in the La Fortuna area with this uh, the student group that I was with which is a very highly developed it's like one of the main tourism hotspots mm-hmm. in the country so I had like the two extremes of it and then where I was doing these interviews were in the areas around these tourism sort of epicenters where okay. it, they were very rural and typically lower socioeconomic class than maybe most um and so having a translator there just for like kind of that cultural fluency of like where should I go and one of the things we realized really early on was because I was doing opportunistic sampling which meant I was asking people on the street if they had time to do Mm -hmm. a a 25-minute interview um that was hard because most people were in their homes because it's so hot in Mm. the summer um and it's also the rainy season So what we decided was whenever we would go to a different uh, town or a different sort of neighborhood, we would go to the the restaurant that was like locally owned called Soda. And sodas are locally owned restaurants in Costa Rica. They're always called sodas? Yeah, they're called sodas. That's how you know it's owned by like a Costa Rican person. Um, And they're like the always the best and the cheapest food there. And we would sit in the soda and when someone looked unoccupied and just came in to like have a coffee or something like that, we'd ask them, do you have time? (laughs) And so we got we got like 18 year old boys to like 80 year old men and as you you said 25 people overall or yeah 25 people overall mostly in the La Fortuna area in the the towns around it um, which are mostly like agricultural um, and farmlands but they're near Monte Verde and these incredible cloud forests so it's the rainforest is sort of in their backyard but where they live is more flat and rural Um, and having a translator came in handy because I had already planned my interviews to be photo interpretive which meant that I had photos of all the monkeys because I was told they some people might not know the they might have a different name for a monkey or they might not know the name of the monkey. Mm-hmm. So if I'm asking, oh, do you know like ha- have you ever had an issue with a Catablanca, which is a capuchin monkey? They might not know what I mean. So I had photos of the monkeys and I had photos of different interactions and relations we have with them. So people feeding monkeys, monkeys on someone's shoulder, and then conversely, like someone looking at monkeys with binoculars, just to kind of get a sense of how they reacted to these scenarios. And then I had different adjectives written in Spanish, which for me was great because I just knew what the adjectives meant. So even without sometimes translating, I would ask them, oh, can you point, here's a photo, can you point, it was almost like a psychologist, <laughs> can you point to the word that you associate with this? That's so, a really clever strategy, though, to get across some of your, your language barriers. And, and even, I mean, even if the language barrier wasn't there, to just make mm-hmm. sure that you're conveying the same kind of emotive sense. But yeah, Absolutely. super interesting. Well, that's that's sort of how it kind of came to be, was I had, I thought, oh, why don't I show them photos? And I started doing research on photo interpretation. And I thought it would be a really easy way to quantify, like, um, who, how, what, um, for example, a photo of someone feeding a monkey. What are the main words associated with this by the people I've interviewed? And it would be, like, either, like, funny, friendly, which was, like, easily the two most cited words for every photo of a monkey, which is interesting in itself that a lot of people find them funny and friendly. Mm. Um, But then you'd get the occasional, you know, like sort of ecocentrist mindset where someone say, no, wrong, we shouldn't be feeding them, they belong in the wild, this is bad. Um, so I was able to see really quickly whether they were pointing to something that was a positive or a negative interpretation. 
But then one time I interviewed someone that if my translator hadn't been there, it would have taken me a lot longer, if at all, to realize he was illiterate. And he was just sort of staring at the words. And I thought he was very old. He was a farmer. And I just sort of thought he was taking it in because there was a lot of words there. And sometimes it took people a minute to be familiar with it. Um, and I start, started hearing that my translator was reading out each individual word to him. Oh, wow. And I thought it was sort of like a like a bit of a push. And then he kind of gave me a look and I said, oh, okay, I get it now. And so instead I just said, what do you think of when you see this photo? So there was a lot of this pivoting that would have been incredibly difficult without a translator there to, to do that because I don't know how I would have figured out eventually that he was not able to read. Um, and it sounds like the translator them. was doing so much more than just translating language. Also, uh, you, you mentioned cultural fluency a few mm -hmm. times, that, that having someone from, from the region or from the country at the very least aided you in terms of understanding the small nuances of people's behavior. I, I think it was really powerful when you said, you know, where to stand or how to stand. Uh, I remember something similar happening to me in Botswana where I would walk in um, to, to someone's home and, you know, generally a seat would be given up or someone would get off their seat with the mm -hmm. indicator of giving me the seat because normally there would be only one or two seats available. Um, and at first I didn't know how to interpret this. Like I would be like, no, 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 it's fine. You keep the seats. But then, uh, you know, it took, uh, I also had a, a translator there who eventually just described and explained to me saying, no, no, this is, you know, it's a show of respect to, you know, to invite you and welcome you. But it's all these small things that you, you can't even possibly yes. fathom before you're actually in the field or, or have become. And it's a relationship that you build over time, right? Uh, so this idea of collaboration with, with locals and, and particularly considering the fact that there is so little on, on the particular realm of conservation that you're looking at in Costa Rica. Have you considered approaching universities in the country mm -hmm. to find, you know, students that you can collaborate with? Or is this, uh, you know, this translator potentially open up to further collaborations? Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the future of this hold in terms of ensuring that it goes be beyond your PhD? It just, it sounds so important that it's, and, and so fruitful that uh, I'm just curious what, what, mm -hmm. what connections are being made? Because uh, it's hard, because you're here in Canada. So, so what, are, what are you thinking? So that was one thing I really wanted to um, to do was I, I said if I'm going to go here to do research as opposed to Canada or staying here, I really wanted to do something that would have a tangible impact on the lives of animals and ideally also on the lives of the people working with animals. Um, and it's tricky because most of the sanctuaries are, are operated by expats. I've only found two so far that are owned by local people. Um, so that already was like, I had to set back my expectations a little bit. Um, and also sort of check myself cause I immediately assumed, you know, I was almost like, I was like suspicious of any expats almost, but they're all the ones I met were incredible and they really dedicated their lives to these animals. And some of them live in genuine abject poverty in very like right on the edge of a jungle or in a jungle mm. to take care of these animals and they're from like America and they moved there 20 years ago and they're okay with that lifestyle and that to me is so incredible the sacrifices and quite a lot of the sanctuaries did have local staff that were hired and part of that is a kudos to the Costa Rican government that requires now um, sanctuaries they've really um, they're working on formalizing all of the legislation for, for zoos and rescue centers, is that you have to have a veterinarian um, that comes for a certain amount of time a week or lives in at the sanctuary. So that's almost always going to be a Costa Rican person because mm -hmm. um, they're familiar with um, the wildlife. 
And then you need to have a biologist who is sort of like the in-between of the sanctuary and the, and the government, and they make these reports on what's going on. And that's always going to be a Costa Rican person because it's going to be done in Spanish. Typically, that's sort of the... So you're always going to have at least like two local people that are working in hired positions that um, pay something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that was great to see. And what I found is like going on to what I wanted to give back, I was really... Um, already having sort of my expectations sort of shift when I saw the the culture of what was going on and the, and the climate in which this rehabilitation work was happening, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be prescriptive and think this is what is needed here. I'm going to listen a mm. lot to what people need. And so what I heard pretty early on in interviews, which then I later integrated as a question in the future interviews, was like, do you need a protocol for rehabilitating monkeys? And like, they could use a protocol for pretty much any animal. Like there's a tons of different species that are coming into rescue centers, but of course I was interested in monkeys and they are among the hardest to rehabilitate, if not the hardest next to sloths. Um, and so the answer was always yes. Yes, a protocol would be useful or yes, we have a protocol, but we want to see what other people say. Okay. Um, so, and then when I did interviews at the University of Costa Rica and, and when I interviewed the advisor to the vice minister of natural resources, she was a veterinarian, and I should also just shout out Costa Rica. So many women were in high positions of power, um, and I also never once, I was thinking about my positionality doing interviews with a male translator. I never once, like, they would always look at me. They never looked at the translator, which was the opposite of what I had read in a lot of sort of development research. Mm. So that's great for the gender equality in Costa Rica. Um, and so there was this, this need for a protocol and this need to gather essentially what are people doing because there's so much trial and error in this field and the only research I've seen on it was like one paper out of Panama on how to rehabilitate only one specific type of animal um, and that was given to me over Twitter um, by an awesome guy Jay Schwartz so there's really a need for this um, what are the steps to releasing an animal because there's so many different variations mm -hmm. and there's so like every rescue center is going to have a completely different style they're going to feed the animal something different there's like for example if you have an orphaned monkey and to give kind of a perspective um some rescue centers might have like 10 or more orphaned monkeys coming in that are still being breastfed and their mother has died either being electrocuted or hit by a car or something um and so essentially to me there it's like raising a human baby they have the same needs and there's still no standard like do you feed them goat milk do you feed them soy milk oh, wow. or mat like human breast milk different places have different um methods and then for me I want to see like what are the methods of all these rescue centers if they so tell me. So you're also me. seeing like cutting across species there with, with milk and how to reproduce I guess suppose these yeah. um, how to help these animals survive it's cutting across a whole a whole that's a super fascinating yeah um yeah and what did you find sorry like yeah, to no, jump absolutely. in there what did, what did you find uh what what kind of milk was predominantly being given to these goat milk Goat milk. I constantly heard that goat milk was like the standard and the best milk for almost all mammals that they had to rehabilitate, not just monkeys. And that if that gave digestive, if for some reason that caused digestive issues with the monkey or that mammal, they would switch to like a soy blend. So it was sort of those two were the most frequent. And, and you've taken all this sort of information. When you say protocol, are you, mm -hmm. so is this... Uh, I mean, you said it's not necessarily prescriptive. Is it just kind of an outlay of what is being done and what mm -hmm. options are available? And are, are you yeah. creating that? Or what? 
Good. <laughs> Good <laughs> it's something that I feel like will come definitely at the end of okay. my, my PhD because it's something I want to do in collaboration with the researchers, the local researchers there, as well as the government. And when I was at the Ministry of the Environment doing interviews, they said that they would be interested in me doing a protocol and even potentially a conference, which is amazing, super exciting um, to kind of bring people together. You're a rock star. <laughs> I'm, I know that it's going to be a lot harder to organize, especially I'd have to be there to organize it. So it would take a lot. Um, but essentially, I want to do anything that involves no knowledge mobilization because for me, I think what would be really important is connecting different rescue centers and sanctuaries with each other, but not in a forced way, because they won't do that in a forced way. Some of them have been open for decades and they just don't talk. I'm not gonna be the person to change that. Um, but what I'd like to ideally do is to, I've been to these rescue centers and three of which I was at for multiple weeks. Some were day visits and then there were three that I stayed at for quite a long time. And I took down, like I went through all of their animal archives. What treatments did these monkeys get? Did they survive? Were they released? Did they stay in the sanctuary? And what I was trying to do is see, like how do the methods of rehabilitation um, at a certain rescue center translate to their success of release or their success of having them in captivity? Mm -hmm. So basically looking for best practices and I have nothing really to go off of, so it's mostly just me going through like moldy files from like 10 years ago to see how many monkeys were there. Um, and are they, where are they now? Wow. So what I'd like to do um, is to look at those best, best practices and then pass it through the government. And again, like it's great that we have like veterinarians at the head of the Ministry of the Environment, so people that really have a lot of animal knowledge and environmental knowledge um, to go through it and then create something that I can give back as sort of just a standardized peace and at least the beginning of a conversation where there's there's yeah. need for it clearly absolutely and uh, i think one of the one of the, the last questions i wanted to touch on here is throughout the interview you've been speaking a lot about how you went in with certain assumptions you know you had assumptions about how people would respond to monkeys you had assumptions about uh you know how people would respond to you as a woman mm -hmm. you had a variety of assumptions uh you know, which were obviously shaped through your own life experiences in one way or another. What what do you what do you think about this in terms of doing international research and and going into a place with a variety of expectations? Uh, you you know, you, you come from from Canada. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's been you know, I, I come from South Africa where I've been exposed to different things, and you've been exposed to different things. And then when you go to a, you know a, a new country um, or a new space, even within your own country, you're confronted with your own assumptions. Uh, could you possibly walk us through some of, of you know, what your unlearning has been mm -hmm. with regards to, you also mentioned like post-colonial thoughts, et cetera. Yeah. It's, it sounds like you've gone through a process so much bigger than what your research was, and your research is pretty comprehensive. Um, I mean, from creating protocols to conferences to helping save monkeys in a country far away um, to meeting ministries, and um, it's it's truly impressive. But for for you as Siobhan, it sounds like it's also been a huge experience of of unlearning some of what you thought. Mm -hmm. um, what do you what do you think of that? Absolutely, I think one of the biggest things was realizing that at least at the sites I went to, every single person's that was working in animal care and in some sort of aspect of the sanctuary was doing it for the animals. Like even the, there's sort of like a, people have certain perceptions, especially of tourists that go and, you know, a lot of these sanctuary, well, almost all of them are NGOs. So they rely on the dollars that tourists or voluntourists will pay very expensive, like more than you would pay to just live in typically your own city, like $60 a day, sometimes American 
to live in a a cabin in the jungle and wake up at 5 a.m. to like wash animal feces off of enclosures it's not it's not easy work it's really hard work um and the nature of it's sort of this catch-22 of like you'd they'd want to of course hire like local people in these positions but they're they're not paid because so many of these sanctuaries are like breaking even like i heard one sanctuary owner told me like this is a money sink this isn't something you get into to like make money off Mm -hmm. of um so one of the things i had was definitely realizing that the tourists and the volunteers that come here, this isn't like a glamorous vacation for them. And I ended up doing like a lot of surveys and interviews with tourists and, and volunteers and realizing these people are here because they love animals. Um, so that was one expectation. I sort of checked as well the sort of wealth gaps and I'm still trying to come to grips with what I thought was um, like a lower class I realized is actually like a middle class in Costa Rica than when I saw what actual like abject poverty looked like. So just going around the country and doing these interviews in places that I'd never been before, I traveled essentially the entire Pacific coast, um, going to different, uh, yeah, to different spots, realizing that what I thought was like a wealthy home is not actually a wealthy home or, or likewise, what I thought was really poor was, was not so much. So, so learning about sort of the economic expectations and what I'm going to hear from people, um, is another thing. And, in terms of sort of expectations as well, I thought that I would have to constantly like pitch myself and convince people, and I did, but it was actually mostly the expats working in rescue centers was mm-hmm. where I, I felt like I was under the most scrutiny, and it could be just because we spoke a, the same language, so I was able to kind of pick up on nuances, but I felt like that's where I really had to sort of sell myself as a researcher, and whereas pretty much every Costa Rican I interviewed was interested in what I was doing and supportive of it and had someone that I should talk to whether it was like their brother that saw a monkey in the town next over or like the vet that I interviewed that connected me to the minister of the environment because they were friends and went to vet school together whereas I would never she like her name isn't even listed on the website like I would never have found her Mm. and she became sort of my like a really great guide and was the person that confirmed yes you're the only person working on this no, we don't know how many monkeys there are. No, we don't know how many sanctuaries there are. Everything is sort of a guesstimate. So that was my confirmation of like how pressing this research was. It was like a foundational turning point. Um, Yeah, I would say those are sort of the expectations that shifted and the ways that I had to change. Now I realize essentially like, and it goes without saying not to be judgmental, but you don't sometimes realize how much you come with an implicit bias Mm. to a certain site or to talk to a certain person and then you just have your mind blown that's the opposite of what you thought and you have to be open to having that that thought changed as well Mm -hmm. and I suppose it takes time right the longer you're in a space the more you become accustomed to what you know different norms are and how the the people and the animals and everyone within that space operates it takes time I think it takes an openness to see that uh I think you mentioned it right at the right at the beginning of the interview where you said it was a humbling experience mm-hmm. to to speak you know Spanish, um, and to have people help you throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's incredible. I think this has been, you know, a, a great. We've gone through so many different things in this conversation in terms of just how you can learn through international scholarship and grow as a person and, and substantially contribute. That cutting across these borders isn't always. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 challenging, uh, certainly, but that there's great opportunity for you as an individual, but to to contribute in substantive ways, 
uh, with with a variety of people who are keen to to engage. Mm-hmm. So um, congratulations! Oh, thank you. Uh, like um, before we close up, I wanted to ask. So we always end off the podcast. We're speaking a bit about a song and why someone, uh, you know, it's either a song that reminds you of your field work or it's a song that makes you think of where you did your field work mm-hmm. or the process of doing your field work. I will survive. <laughs> no, no. Um, what, what song comes to mind for you when you think about uh, having done your research and, and having done field work in Costa Rica? Absolutely. So I've realized that this is actually the perfect sort of um, – I guess, story to tell because it really represents how incredible the Costa Rican people are. Um, So I made a friend within the first two days of my uh, field work because the hostel that I had booked flying into the country for the first night, the parking lot, I had to rent a car. The parking lot was totally flooded. It was, there were literally men like shoveling in ditches and they were like, go park there, which is like very classic. (laughs) They're like, it's fine. It's fine. I'm like, I have so much stuff. And it was, it was just not a good situation to have so many technical equipment and everything. So I had to drive around and it's like the sun goes down there around like 530 and it's already like getting dark. And I'm like, how am I going to find a hotel? Like, am I going to have to live in my car for the night? This, and it was my first night flying in so I was like oh, oh my this goodness. is such a classic omen and I just saw this hotel and I was like oh this looks like nice might as well go in maybe they have like a last minute deal and the front desk woman Wendy uh, was around my age and she gave a gave me a discounted rate and was just incredible and she spoke perfect English and we sort of became like Instagram friends and she had posted this song Milagrito de Amor on her Instagram. I don't even know if she knows that I saw it and I listened to it and it's by a Costa Rican uh, performer. So I thought, oh, that's perfect. Now I've got like some Costa Rican music in my life. And this is someone who I only knew for like three days in June. And at the end of August, I had all of the supplies that I didn't have room for to bring home to, to Canada. And I knew that she was from San Jose, the capital city, even though she was living in Tamarindo, which is very far away. And I said, do you know anyone or any sort of, like, do you have a storage locker type situation here in Costa Rica where I could leave stuff for, like, mm-hmm. up to a year? And she's like, oh, leave it at my mom's. So I, wow. and who and she wasn't even there. And we drove to her mom's house. They fed us. Like, they gave us storage. They brought us all the way. They Actually, her mom got in the car, directed us to our hotel in downtown San Jose and took a one-hour bus ride back. And wouldn't, and wouldn't even tell us that she was doing that. We kept saying, we thought that we were dropping her off somewhere. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, just keep going, keep going. And I said, oh, now we're at our hotel. She's like, it's fine. I Like, I wanted to get out of the house. And it was just something Whoa. that was so incredible. I couldn't imagine anyone else doing. So, yeah, this song makes me think of her. That's amazing. Do, do you know what the song itself is about, any chance? It's like a love song. It's about, like, the miracles of love. Oh, yeah. that's kind of, that's a, that's a really nice way, I think, to wrap yeah. up. Um, love you, Wendy. <laughs> there we go. All the love for Wendy. And, um... <laughs> And, and and for Instagram, it sounds like an Instagram yeah. has been this like incredible connector. What's your Instagram handle one more time? Yes, the Animal Welfareist. The Animal Welfareist. Uh, well, Siobhan, it's been so great to talk to you, and I wish Thank you, you. Um, you know, it would be great to touch base again once you've done uh, further research and to hear about how these protocols and the potential conference, etc., have mm-hmm. uh, progressed. But it's so exciting to talk to you and to see uh, some of the the awesome things that can emerge from doing international uh, scholarship. So thank you for being with us here today. And thank I wish you for you having me. You're so welcome. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. You too. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Milagrito de amor Que bonito accidente Que 
maravilla mi amor tropezar de repente milagrito de amor entre toda la gente que tiene mi corazón el tenerte de frente ¿Quién diría que el tranvía transportaba un tesoro en su tripulación? A big thank you to today's guest, as well as to all of the staff here at CFRC, with a special thanks to the station manager, Diana Janssen. The bed music for this podcast is Mafiki Zolo featuring Uhuru singing Kona. This has been Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.